Welcome to Two Paley's on a Pod. I'm Bria Paley, currently in Queens, where I live. And I'm Michael Paley, currently in Budapest, Hungary, where I live. And right now is in this 10-day period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These are called the Esiyamei Chuvot, the 10 days of Chuva. Chuva is a hard word to exactly translate. Mostly it's, it's translated as repentance, but it has also a very large amount of return in it. Um, so maybe it also could be understood to be the 10 days of return. Um, and and Bree and I, we're going to think about it today. Yes, that's right. So first of all, Shana Tova to you and to our listeners. Yes, Shana Tova. Happy New Year to everybody. And Gemar Hatimatova, may you all be sealed in the book of life even though I'm not sure if I really believe there is a big book. Well, there's but a big book of that Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> there are many big books in the world, but I don't know if there's like one in the, where would it be, in the sky or? Yeah, in the sky, like a giant book in the sky. Yeah, so I don't know if I really believe in that. I'm not sure I really believe in fate in that way, that it's already determined what your year is going to be. I think we get to determine what our year is going to be. No, I believe I believe that God is always directing the show. Oh, yeah, say something about that. That's really what I believe. Like, yes, we have free will, but ultimately it's God who who chooses our fate and makes things happen. Why I was born into this family and not another family, why I've been given the gifts that I have and how to use them. Hmm. I feel like I was born with many gifts but i don't know if everything is directed by god because then a lot of bad things happen in the world and those would also be directed by god and i i really don't have that in my view of god well bad things have to happen to uh to teach us very valuable lessons you know i i could see that although you're the the granddaughter of a holocaust survivor and it's hard to think that something that bad needed to happen to teach us. Although I do admit that right now we live in a world which has to struggle with enormous problems, including climate change, which is a kind of ultimate problem. Um, and maybe if we all paid attention to what we can do to each other in such a negative way, like the Holocaust, we would would reform. But, you know, I look around and I see the rise of uh, authoritarianism and I see lots of um, of fake issues clouding our judgment, one of the big ones. So it, it, it still doesn't feel like even the Holocaust was effective at teaching us in the way that, that we really need to learn. Well, you know, it comes up almost every day, really, that my parents live in Budapest and, you know, what are you doing there? And so maybe for people who do don't know, do you want to explain why you're there? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to do that. Um, right now, I'm sitting in my um, my beautiful uh, Danube apartment. I'm looking out at the Danube as it flows by on a lovely uh, Thursday afternoon. Um, uh, and the birds are flying across the sky. It's quite a delightful scene here at the foot of the Margaret Bridge, which is where I live in Budapest. Um, we came here a number of years ago, I guess 11 years ago, for a sabbatical. Um, and, you know, number one, we just liked it. So that's, we have to f put that in. It's a very beautiful city. It's manageable size. 
easy to get around and really very kind of, you know, what can I say, cheap um, to live in, you know, it's like by the third the cost of uh, New York. So um, it, it, there are many benefits um, of it. The lovely restaurants, we like Hungarian kind of vegan food. It sounds almost like an oxymoron. Hungarians used to only eat meat, but we also now like the vegan parts of it. So, so there's that. But the real thing that drew us here, particularly me here, was the fact that um, it has a huge Jewish population relative to the rest of Europe. So even though there are big Jewish populations in London and in Paris, most places it's much smaller. In Budapest, I think really 150,000 Jews uh, live here. So um, for me as a rabbi, I have all the things I need, 26 synagogues, you know, plenty of uh, restaurants, a lot of uh, camaraderie, Shabbos services, um, you know, uh, um, you know, challah bakeries and ev everything that you could possibly want because it's such a large Jewish community. But it's also a very interesting Jewish community. It's, it was a secular Jewish community, mostly coming from Bohemia, Moravia, where the, where now you find the Czech Republic um, um, in the around the 1870s, 1880s. And those people um, were the first kind of enlightenment products and they and they built the city of Budapest, you know, uh, and they established a huge Jewish population and a huge Jewish impact here. Um, and many of the, of, the, of the wonders of the modern world came from Hungarian Jews who were actually going into exile. Um, so when, when I came here, I, I said, such an illustrious background, maybe I could build education programs that would once again re-engage um, Hungarian Jews in the life of the mind and the life of Jewish culture, and that the whole Jewish world would benefit from that. So I, I began a, an education program called the Tarbut Fellowship um, uh, through the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, which has always been a family favorite. My mother was on the board many years ago. Um, and so uh, I did do that. I put a cohort together here and a cohort together in Warsaw in Poland, which is, a, which is about a, an hour flight away. Um, and, and that has been a wonderful experience. And now we're thinking about uh, moving into Germany. Yeah, very cool. I meet a lot of Hungarian Jews, and I always feel a little envious, honestly. Why? Because I think Hungarian Jews are, are really intellectuals and, you know, artistic and really like the best of the best. I, You know, I never would have thought that. I never had any connection to Hungarian Jews in my life, except that Nam and Gabe, Bria's brother and sister, went to the fantastic summer camp called Sarvash. You could have gone to it also. It just didn't open in time for you to go. Um, uh, but I, I do. I love, I love the Jews that live here. They're really interesting. Yeah, I think so. Well, um, I like to tell the story of last, last September, I spent Rosh Hashanah with you in Budapest, although I got COVID, which was a bummer. <laughs> but um, so... It's true. So I was late for Shul on Rosh Hashanah. Um, and you had told me that morning when you were leaving, you said, look for the shawl. It's next to the sex shop. So I said, <laughs> yeah, okay. That seems pretty straightforward to me. So I'm running late. I, I, I'm, I go find the sex, sex, sex store. And, uh, I don't see any synagogue there. I don't see anything like a synagogue at all. So I'm like, I'm getting really anxious and I'm running around and I'm asking people, do you know where the synagogue is? And no one knows what I'm talking about. And then all of a sudden, I have this 
realization that it's inside a residential apartment yeah. building, the synagogue yeah. inside the building. You would never know it was in there. I don't even think the people who live there know it's in there. It might be true. I, I sometimes think that. Yeah. And so now was that, built, <laughs> was that was that built because it needed to be hidden after what happened in the Holocaust or was it something else? No, I think it was hidden before the Holocaust. I think it the synagogue started earlier. Also, there across the river in the Buddha side. Buddha has a Pesh side and a Buddha side. I live in Pesh, but I can walk to Buddha across the bridge. Um, it's a beautiful synagogue surrounded by an entire apartment complex. You would never see it from the street. Yes, what you're saying is right. The, the three big synagogues um, in the so-called Jewish district, of course, are big synagogues, and they get protected. But there are lots of synagogues in apartment buildings and surrounded by apartment buildings out in parks themselves because people were afraid. Yes, it's true. I like, no one the, one, I like the one near Lukash bathhouse. Yeah. It's a beautiful synagogue, right? Yeah. That one's That's called beautiful. the Franco, the Franco Leo synagogue. Oh, it's sweet. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. And I love going there in the, and the chazan, the, the person who sings the services is like an opera singer. Gergu. And to be, you know, like 900 people came on, uh, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah uh, last week to hear him sing on, in an outdoor uh, tent. 900 people. Wow. So, and, and that's, you know, that's among the many thousands that went other places. And do you, and you feel I, like, I love... do you feel like a bit yeah. of like a, a celebrity? Um, I, I do feel weirdly uh, well known. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I do feel um, that people know of my work I, I work with the secular community more than the religious community, but I pray and and meet and and eat and all the other things with the religious community. So I'm kind of a bridge person um, in where there are very few bridge people. Most rabbis here, of course, like anywhere else, want you to come to their synagogue. Um, and so people don't want to go to the synagogue, so they don't go near them. But I don't have a synagogue, so, so wow, they don't have to go anywhere for me. So I'm, I'm much more approachable. And then most of the teachers are professors that want to do research. And so they, they, they don't really, they're not really open to conversations or teaching, but I'm much more of a public teacher. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's been really great. You know, I don't know if I'll stay here for so much longer, but um, because I miss you and your, and your siblings and their, and our grandchildren. Um, so that's a challenge. And so I think it's a little hard to be an expat in your, in your late sixties and seventies, but I have to tell you, it's been a delightful time. And I love it when you come. The best times are when you come. Yeah, I know. Thanks. So, but how about walking around Brooklyn? Do you feel known there? No. Brooklyn has a half a million Jews, and I'm a, I never lived there before. Mm. And it's not, I don't really, I don't, I don't really know it so well. I have my street and my, and Vanderbilt Avenue, and that's it. Yeah, I don't so why, know. Why do anybody. you live there? Um, well, maybe, uh, Maybe when we come back to America, um, uh, which I, I feel will be relatively soon, we'll find a place that's more amenable. We would live there because it was near your sister and her children and her husband. Mm-hmm. So that was the full motivating factor. But I, I don't see it as my home into the future. Yeah. So um, even though nothing, you know, I, I, I think I'm just the wrong age for Brooklyn or not the, or the wrong 
religious intensity. I think if I was a, you know, a Chabad rabbi, I probably have a fantastic time living there. Um, uh, or if I was a 35 year old hipster, I'd be good, but, but I'm none of those things. I'm kind of like, I think you, or maybe your sister once asked me in the Upper West Side, why we live there. And I said, you see all the people around us, all the Jews around us, they're all my age and they all look exactly like me. It's our tribal homeland. So yeah. I kind of feel that. It's still there. Yeah. You know, they're all still I know. there. You're just not there. Right? Yeah, I could go back. And they can enjoyed you, it, right? Everybody said that the services were wonderful. You know, but I also, I do want to spend some time talking about uh, repentance. Do you want to do that also? Yeah, I guess. I don't really like repentance that much. Why is that? You know, it's like uncomfortable. You have to like go to someone and be like, I'm sorry, I hurt you this year. And, you know, maybe maybe they hurt you, but they don't acknowledge it. Or, you know, it's just it's like a whole it's it feels like a, a difficult, uncomfortable process, like making amends in the twelve step program, which I also largely avoided. But you did do it, right? Not like not really. Like I made a couple, but not that many. Oh yeah? Why is that? Cause I don't uh I don't I think I, I, I have to work on forgiving myself before I can forgive others and that's that's a process I'm still in. Um since we last spoke, um well a few things have happened. I was in search of a Jewish community in Queens. And um, I believe that I, I found one. It's not perfect, but I think it's pretty good. It's called Ashrenu. Um, this rabbi, Jonathan Pearl, um, very nice man, probably about your age, um, has three children. And um, he retired as the Astoria Center of Israel, I think it's called, rabbis. And then mm. he started this um, in his retirement. So like you, working probably more than ever. And uh, he's very musical. He plays the keyboard and he sings and he comes up with a, a really nice service that's like a mix of songs that have been rewritten and old songs. Like we sang What a Wonderful World with some different lyrics. And um, it's a it's a pluralistic um, community. And, you know, there are people my age, uh, a lot of couples, people with kids. But um, we did a, a Toshlich ceremony which you know is the casting casting away of our sins for the year so we did that yeah but symbolic. you cast them away by throwing bread into the water yeah exactly but then i did a second toshley with another community called malchut in long island city and they said that bread is not good for the animals so we we put like corn husks into the water really yeah i always think that you're supposed to put bread in because the fish eat them and if you remember the story of Noah, um, all the animals were also uh, destroyed along with the people, except for the fish. And also fish don't have eyelids, so they keep their eyes open all the time. So it's a good symbol for um, seeing your deeds um, and for being pure. Um, and also fish are very good at being in community because they swim around in schools. So that's, I think that's one yeah. of the reasons for it. But maybe corn husks could also work. Also, when you so, throw bread in the water um, now, the the, pigeon, the seagulls uh, eat all the bread. Yeah, right, right. Well, I don't know. I haven't done the research on it, but um, I, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but well, talk, I talk a little. 
Yeah, talk a little, I don't want to leave the tell me what else is going on with you. That's right. That's okay. Important. Well, I was gonna say, so so because I'm a singer and I love to sing, um, I have uh volunteered to join the Ashray New Singers. So huh. I should be singing uh for Yom Kippur on um Kul Nidre and, and probably Monday as well. And um so that's nice. And then um I started neurofeedback sessions two weeks ago. So I've only, today's my second one. So uh, I'm still new to it, but I do feel that there's been some shifts in my general mood. I feel like, um, ha- I guess a bit happier, more optimistic. Um, still a lot of grief surrounding uh, the loss of our cousin Rafi, who you know, took yeah. his life. Um, that still, you know, continues to be shocking and heartbreaking. Um but um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm also working on some internal family systems work and reading a book by uh, Richard Schwartz called No Bad Parts, which talks about the different parts that make up your internal family. Each person has an internal family. They have the self and then they have their other parts, which are secondary, which is like a, your firefighter, your protector, your exile. And these all work to protect you, but they can feel like they're sabotaging you. Yes, I, you know I, I noticed mean? that so in you. Yeah. I do, yeah. You have to ask them. You have to say, like, what, what are you trying to tell me? And sometimes you have to ask them to politely step aside. Oh, that's right. That's, that's, that sounds like a nice approach. It also, I have to say, it sounds kind of like Rosh Hashanah, but I'll get to that in a minute. Yom Kippur, you know. Yes. And also, can you just mention your comedy? Uh... Oh, yes. Yes, I can promote my comedy show on here. So uh, October 2nd at 7 p.m. in New York City at the Gotham Comedy Club. That's in Chelsea. So I will be performing a set um, at the comedy show. It's on a Monday night. So I know a lot of people can't make it because they have kids and this and that. But if you can make it, um, I'd love you to come. It is an $18 cover charge and a two-drink minimum. But, you know, you can get a soda if you don't want to buy a cocktail or something. And you'll probably have a good time, right? I think so. I mean, I probably won't have too much time, but it's a start for me. And it's something I'm passionate about. I really wanted to be a performer because I feel that that's just a natural thing for me. Um, and I've actually been trying out my material on on everyone I encounter lately. <laughs> they, don't, was... they don't know it, but I'm trying out material on them. Well, I, I know I, you, I, I spoke to you on the phone when you were in a shop and all of a sudden you turned to the shopkeeper and started doing your material on that person. So. Yeah, I really enjoy um, talking to shopkeepers because they usually they have nowhere to go. You know, <laughs> they're, just, they're just sitting there usually alone um on their phone sometimes uh, it seems like a you know it's an I've, I've worked in retail so i i know that job um and i was i was thinking like i feel like people in retail should be tipped like you tip you know everyone else <laughs> every single person you tip these days right who do you not tip in this world anymore i have to say i was in japan no one gets tipped it's really a relief and in hungary almost nobody gets tipped it's also a relief I agree. I think tipping's ridiculous, but as long as we're doing it, we should be tipping people in retail who have to deal with, you know, deal with us. Well, I do know that in one of my pet peeves is that, you know, you now do, do the 
screens where you put your card on it and it just automatically says 15% tip. And the, the person who just served you is looking at you and they've done nothing more than hand you a piece of food. But anyways, it feels like you should tip them 15%, like as if they were waiting for you at your uh, table. It all feels a bit unjust. And, the, and 15 is not even enough. They only have, I think, 18, 22, and 25%. Exactly. Anyways, I don't want to really talk about tipping, even though it's, maybe it's also a useful thing. I am interested in the internal families piece. It reminds me a lot about, um, about what I think this period of time is about, which is, the, again, I, I said the word chuva. Um, uh, which means somewhat return. I, I kind of think, can I talk about this for a moment? So, you know, the word tshuva, it's a very interesting thing. You know, in, in, the, in the Torah, uh, return is a very complicated idea. The first thing that happens was pretty much the, in, the, in almost the day that human beings are created is that um, Eve eats the, from the tree of knowledge and gives the apples or the fruit um, whatever the fruit is to um, Adam and he also eats um, and they get expelled from the garden. So since the garden was the garden of life and of immortality and wisdom, they, it's a place they want to go back. So the word tshuva in some ways has that image, right? I want to go back to the best times. I want to go back to the times of paradise. So it doesn't just mean repentance. It really means returning to the best times. And then then we know that, I, I, as I said last time, you know, about climbing the mountain, Moses goes up the mountain um, on Shavuot to be with God for 40 days, and then he comes down on the 17th of Tammuz. Then they build the golden calf, and he has to go back up the mountain on the beginning of the month of Elul, which stands for Anil Dodi Vidodi Li, I, my beloved, my beloved is mine. And Moses comes down, or he returns to the people on Yom Kippur. Right, so this journey of up and down the mountain and then up and down the mountain again culminates on Yom Kippur. And if we're not good on Yom Kippur, if we build the golden calf again, we're done. So it's in the in the story of the year, it's a very important moment, right? You don't want to build the golden calf. You want to actually look like you'd rather die than build a golden calf. And so you do. On Yom Kippur, you simulate your death by not eating, not drinking, not washing not wearing shoes, not engaging in, in sexual intimacy. Those are all hallmarks of life. And on Yom Kippur, you actually want to kind of simulate your death. So yeah. much so that you that you can feel the closeness of God. You know, most of the time when we say we're going to go see God, it's because we're going to die, you know? And there is a lot of death on, on Yom Kippur. But even more important would be to see God and still live. Right. So, so that's the that's the key moment of Yom Kippur. And if you fast and if you don't wash and you don't engage in intimacy, you really cope with your problems. You you maybe you will see God and you will have the ultimate aspect of Yom Kippur, which is to find meaning in your life. Mm. And that's every year what I want. As, as much as I want to uh, say I'm sorry and things like that, I mostly try and do that before Yom Kippur during these days. So I'm going to say I'm sorry right now to you, um, uh, but. On Yom Kippur itself, I want to find meaning in my own life, you know? And mm. I, I almost want to simulate my death so I know, you know, look at this. I'm not going to live forever. I better get to it now. Right, yeah, you know? exactly. I just and want to apologize a... if any listeners can hear they're doing, like, some major thing upstairs. It's very distracting and noisy, so. Well, it's always good to apologize during this broadcast. 
we can't, we should apologize, uh, you know, kind of every couple of minutes. It's um, like I feel myself like burning with rage because of the noise upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Because it's it's just so inconvenient, and it's like yeah. been going on for months. Although I've barely been here, but it's like now that I'm actually here, it's it's going on, and I just you know it's I I just noticed that. No matter where you live, there's someone mowing their lawn or hammering something into the wall or renovating their entire apartment. Mm -hmm. New York is very noisy, very noisy indeed. But I have to be honest and say that right next door to me (coughs) in the apartment across the hall, they're uh, renovating it. And during the time that you were hearing noise, I was also hearing noise. And I put and I have my um, soundproof doors to the danube into the traffic outside so i close them um uh, well it's it's very quiet in here if tablet magazine or another company ever gets back to me about hosting our podcast maybe we can get like a a real studio oh that'd be fun but of course we can't really use the studio because i live in budapest now yeah there's studios there oh yeah maybe that's true i could i'm sure i can find one so let me let me let me let me just think about your internal family peace because there are two great teachers about about chuva about repentance and return um one is rav cook and one is rav soloveitchik um and rav soloveitchik talks a lot about what you were talking about he says that on these days between rosh hashanah and yom kippur you have to integrate yourself in other words you know politely ask some of the parts of yourself to be quieter some of the parts to be louder some of the, but at least all get along you know and he calls this not repentance but the rec- the creation of yourself mm. that's a very strong image the creation of yourself right i'm not saying i'm sorry to people i'm creating myself otherwise all the sins that we do and i do some sins all the time all the time all the time and i never seem to be able to change them because i really haven't those were only symptoms and the real piece of me is the is that I don't, I'm not really integrated. I've I've I don't I'm not balanced in the way I go about the world. And so, if I have 25 hours once a year to think about how I could rebalance my life, maybe some of the symptoms, which are the things I call sins, would go away. When did, when do you feel you really began to know yourself? I. I certainly, I certainly was frustrated as a child because of this crazy dyslexia that I had. So I couldn't do, but everybody else in the class seemed to be doing, able to do with ease, which was read. Um, and that meant that I couldn't get a lot of information. But I think around when I was the beginning of being a teenager, um, I began to learn how to read. And then I think I felt, I felt much better about myself. But I would say when I was a 18 or 19 year old, I started to go to this thing called the Chavra Shalom. And, in Somerville, Mass, with lots of other people who were kind of religious seekers and Jewish activists um, and people that studied. And I love those people. Um, I was only 18 or so, but maybe even only 17. But they were just great, and they're still my friends. So they've been my friends for 50 years. I talk to, I talk to them all the time. Same people. So I have lots of long, long relationships, long friendships. I get to work with them. I get to pray with them. I get to drink with them. I get to laugh with them. And, and that's really been a big part of myself. But I had I'm, I'm also, on a dinner with one of them. 
Yeah, tell me. Yeah, I went to the Kern, Kernfeld Jacobs house and um, mm-hmm. and he had organized the 50th Chavara reunion. I've known David Kronfeld for more than 50 years. And we even lived together in, in Jerusalem just as I was meeting your mother. Yeah. You know, we support each other. We're there for each other. It's a great blessing to me. Hmm. But there's some things that it's very hard for me to overcome. And those are things that I still struggle with. But I've begun to feel that this Soloveitchik idea of the creation of the self um, on these days, which means it's not like I'm returning to who I once was and I've lost it. I'm actually trying to do things. He has, a, he, he has an interesting formula. He, he wrote a book called um, um, al on repentance. Easy to find. Um, I read it many times, and I, I may read it uh, again even um, today. Um, uh, and basically he says when you do something, particularly in Jewish tradition, like you, like you put up a mezuzah on your door, he says there are two parts of putting up the mezuzah. One part, you know, that little box that you put on, that Jews put on the outside of their doors. Um, uh, <coughs> one part is the putting up the mezuzah, which means buying the box, getting the scroll that goes inside, saying the blessing, taking a screwdriver, and, and screwing it into the, into the side of your door. But there's also another part, which was the intention to put it up, right? It's an emotional thing. I live here. I'm stating that when I walk through this door, I'm going to Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel. I'm going to listen. And via Hafta Esashem I'm going to love. So, that, so it's not just putting up the, the box and, and kissing it or saying a blessing. It's all of the emotional material that you have to do that. And, and you need both, right? Otherwise, the ritual will be empty or the emotion won't be anchored. So you know, he, you, never yeah. told, you never told me that you're supposed to get your mezuzahs checked. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's, I never told you. No. Well, you're supposed to. You know, sometimes I feel like, like maybe I'm like a, a fraud as a rabbi's daughter because when I was at the <laughs> Kronfelds, they knew a bunch of stuff that I did not know. Well, I, I'd like to apologize right now publicly to you for not teaching about those things. I do not think that I taught you nothing. Well, you know. I mean, I guess because both both he and Sarah are pretty observant, whereas you married Mummy, who is not. So, I don't know. Mummy's very spiritual. I, I'm no. Mummy's Mummy's great at that, and I think she also she has lots yep, of spiritual she, practices. She didn't grow up with the prayers, and she didn't have a bat mitzvah, none of those things. So I grew up with like thinking, well, on Shabbat, you know, I'll just ask, ask Mummy for for money instead. Yes, it was. Well, I, I, I do understand that that was not good for the integration of your soul. No. On the other hand, you got a lot of extra pieces because we didn't agree on everything. So you got two perspectives on things and maybe that was good for you. No, maybe I don't not, think that though, was I don't good. Know. I don't think that, that that was good for me. Yeah. Should I repent about that? Yeah. Also, you wouldn't let me eat meat. I know. We, we were vegetarians. And we didn't have any meat dishes. And we didn't make meat. How can you tell a child that they can't eat meat? Um, we felt that it was a considered way to grow up. Um, and it was more mindful. Um, so 
we thought that we were increasing your mindfulness um, over your appetites. And even now, I kind of feel like that could be also seen as a great gift. You know, mindfulness is good. Yeah, but there's other ways to do mindfulness. If someone believes that their body needs meat or wants meat, then then that's what they should have. And it was very confusing coming coming from a larger family that ate all of these things and then being told I couldn't have them in our family. It, it, there's certain uh, good parts and certain uh, liabilities to grow up in a semi-religious family. I say semi-religious because I was religious and mommy wasn't. Um, uh, and my parents weren't religious and my siblings aren't religious. Although my brother certainly makes fun of it in a learned way and does live in Israel and speaks Hebrew. So that's all good. Um, but yes, I agree. I just felt it would sort out by itself. I didn't really have much of a choice, Bria. I, I, I did. I, I could, we could only be vegetarians at home. Well, I think I mean, even in the high school, we, we used to buy little packages of kosher turkey. Mm. But you, you would have found fault with us in any way. We, if we were kosher, but we ate meat, you also wouldn't have been, you would have been dissatisfied by that. I would have known how to even keep kosher. I never learned any of that. I do agree that all of the interaction of meat and milk, which is part of being kosher, uh, we didn't do because we didn't eat meat. That's true. And I think one time you told me that I didn't even teach you how to cut the meat off the bone of a chicken. That's Which right. I certainly, yeah, I did. I didn't do that because I don't even know myself anymore. You taught me how to cut tofurkey. Yes, cutting tofurkey seems to be easier than cutting the, even knowing what part of the, of the chicken that you like. Yeah, I didn't do any of that stuff. It's true. Well. But life is long and I think you've done a fine job at filling in those gaps. Thank you. I, I, I just, I, I was going to just say one more thing about uh, Chuva. You know, one of the, one of the people that I admire most as a writer, although not, not without some reservations now, is uh, Rav Avram Yitzchak Cook, who was born in 1865 and he died in 1935. He was the chief rabbi of the, of the settlement, of the Jewish settlements in pre-state Israel, Palestine. Um, and, uh, and he was a real mystic. He has a real different view of tshuva. Um, uh, he, he, he focuses on the prayer. Avina um, uh, um our father, our, our king, grants us um, uh, tshuva shlema, perfect um, uh, repentance, perfect tshuva. Um, and and he kind of likens that to um, when you say to a person, Rafur Shlema, um, you should have perfect health. So perfection is not easy, you know. Maybe one day a year on Yom Kippur, you could live in a perfect world, but the rest of the days we cannot live in a perfect world. Um, we have to kind of cope with lots of different kinds of things. Um, but on that day, at least, we could at least have some sense of what perfection would be. And he says, all the things that you do in, in your life, good and bad, are all symptoms of your relationship with, with God. And I know that even in your 12th step, the higher power issue comes into play. Avinu Malkeinu. Yes, that's it. Avinu Malkeinu. Yeah, we say it. It's, we sing it. I think about when you sing it. Are you are you up? Uh, 
Uh, am I? Yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting question with Rav Cook. I don't think I am, right? Because that would be God. But you're my, you're my Avinu. I am your, I'm your, your Abba. There's no doubt. I'm your father. But Malkenu, your king? I don't think so. You know, I've met some Jews from the Upper West Side who said, "Why didn't you call your parents Ima and Abba?" Yeah, we we felt we were living in America, and so you called us uh, mommy and daddy. Interesting. But I do think that uh, David and 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 Sarah, their kids, do you call them Abba and Ima? No, theirs don't. I don't think so. They don't. But like, but like the Kramers. Yeah, maybe the Kramers and, and the Strasfelds. They call their father Tati, like mm. from the Yiddish. How, why did you name me Bria? I I felt that this piece that I said about Rav Soloveitchik, who whom I got to listen to many many times um, when I lived in in Brookline, and he was the rabbi of uh, and the uh, the founder of the overarching figure, the superhero of, of the Maimonides school. He would teach every Saturday night and I would go listen to him. And he did talk a lot about, um, about creating yourself and Bria means creation, but it was really a more mystical idea, even more of a rough cook idea where the, the, there are many different worlds, the world of action, the world of Asiya, the world of formation, the world of Yitzira and the world of creation, the world of Bria, where all things came together. And when you came into our lives, particularly into my life, I guess, I just talked for myself, not for mommy. I just felt like I finally had the peace that I really wanted so much. I wanted to be your father. Um, and I loved you from the very first second, you know? And, and so uh, I think Auntie Leah, your aunt, you know, had, had suggested this word, not knowing what it even meant, Bria. So I give her some credit for naming you. And when I heard it, I said, that's a perfect name, you know? It'll be the realm of creation where all things come together. And in some ways, you know, the thing that you said, which is the uh, internal family. Um, internal family systems. Yeah, internal family systems has a lot to do with the word Bria. Bria yeah. is not just creation. Bria is how things fit together. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge for you, weirdly enough. But maybe I want to give you a name that was going to give you a chizuk, a strength to go and... Uh, did, did you know that I'd be such a creative type? Um, you know, of course, when I saw you, your first second in the world, I was right there as you came out of the, out of, of your mother. I cut the umbilical cord. I didn't think until then. But I, I think I've always noticed that you're very creative. Yes. Was, and I, very was musical. I a singer from a young age? Yes. Yes, you were. I How always so? thought you'd go into fashion, though, because every night you would set your hair. No matter how tired you were, you would set your hair and 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 wear like a kind of a nightcap, you know. So it was, you you had many, but you were very creative. And that I, that I was felt, a funny stage when I did that. Yeah, yeah, you were only. I two, think three, I was seven. Four, five. No, seven. I think I was seven. Oh, I don't think so, but it maybe were. I don't know. I don't remember. And I wore I wore a black a black jumpsuit. Hmm. Corduroy, a black corduroy jumpsuit. Maybe grandma yeah, bought it for me. I loved that jumpsuit. And homemade, handmade earrings. <laughs> I think all these things were, were, you were very creative and very uh, alive in that stuff. So, Do you, do you think that maybe I inherited the spirit of, of a relative from the past? Like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like 
like even right now, I'm looking at my, <coughs> my chest of my mirrored chest of drawers, and in it is Grandma's mm. reflection from the picture facing the mirror. Hmm. So I'm looking straight into Grandma's face. Grandma's face. Sometimes I look in your face, I see Grandma's face, but also in other times I see, you know, the I do see some of the souls that were, you know, I suppose even the ones that were lost. You know, Bria was also supposed to remind us of Baruch, um, who was a Beryl, I guess. Beryl, sorry. Beryl. Beryl, yeah, not Baruch. I don't know where I got that. Beryl, who was your uncle. Grandpa's, no, Beryl was, was um, a, a woman. No, Beryl was a man. And I, Aaron I was a man. So. I, I don't and think Esther. so. And Esther I think so. Beryl? It was Aaron, Grisha, Beryl, and who else? Doba? Doba no. and Esther. And Esther. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to well, figure that out. Then I, I thought we named you after the two brothers that were lost in the Holocaust by Zeta. Hmm. And who, I don't know who those people were. They never got to grow, really, and be adults. No, they were they were teenagers when they were they were who's, murdered. Whose nose do I have? I don't know. Yours. Whose nose do you have? Grandpa's. Really? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know if this will be as interesting a discussion to our listeners, but well, I like since, it since nobody actually knows what I look like. No one knows what you look like. It's in the logo of our podcast. Yes, the logo doesn't. I don't. I, I suppose it does look like me, but not completely. Well, I had an Airbnb guest make that in exchange for paying me. <laughs> well, I I like the logo. I appreciate that you uh, did it. I like you in the podcast. Yeah, I do too. I think people like it. People like it. I think so. I do think that the this is Shabbos. Starting tomorrow night is going to be the Shabbos Shuva, in which we really the 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 main image is stand before the king. Um, we even change um, the word um, God for the word king. Um, so, uh, you know, I know we don't have kings in this world. Although in Hungary, the the leader of the country, Viktor Orban, thinks he's the king, um, and maybe Donald Trump thinks he's the king in America. Well, yeah, and people Bibi say thinks how, he's the king in Israel. Parent- they say, how can your parents live in Budapest when the government is so bad? And it's like, how does anyone live? And how do people live yeah, in but, America? I know. Well, right now the government's not so bad, but it might become bad again. And certainly in Israel, it's very difficult. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm interested in watching it at least. Let me say that. I don't, you know, I can always leave. I'm an American, of course, not a Hungarian. Um, are you, are you a resident? Are you a permanent I'm, resident? I am a I am a resident, okay. not permanent. I get to I have to renew my residency every two years, but I have a residency card and I and I and I have a work permit and I do all those things. Yes. What were you going to say do. about Orban? He thinks he's the he's a um, what king? I think he thinks he's the king, and and I I have to say you know one person controlling so much of the country, it does give you that image of Avinu Malkenu. You know I know about Avinu, our father, but Malkenu, our king is uh, usually more abstract, but now it's less abstract for me. I can see it. Can you get a meeting with Orban? I have met him, um, uh, but I, I, I don't think if I call him up and say, you want to hang out today, he would say that. 
Um, I, I do live right over the Margaret Bridge, so every day around between 6 and 7 o'clock, I see this motorcade come by, you know. Mm-hmm. There's about eight policemen and his SUV, or maybe there are three or four SUVs, so we don't know which one he's in, and uh, he comes over the bridge. So I'm almost always aware of seeing him travel from his office to his home once a day. You know, I've seen amazing things at the Parliament. The Parliament in Budapest? Yeah. Tell me. I I saw a bunch of, I don't know, like, it looked like the Pope. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, but it was some, like, high-level clergy member. Um, And then I was there, there were some, like, there's been festivals, there's been meetings, they've set up massive settings, uh, stages there. Yes, I, I think that the path towards Chuva is hard. But I think, I hope that this is going to be a good one for you. And so I want to say, may you be sealed in the, inscribed in the, in the book of life um, and for the good and Shana Tova, Happy New Year.